The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. All right, our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 7, 8 through 14. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kat. So like Russ said, I'm Richie Sessions. I'm the campus minister, RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt, which means I'm a chaplain primarily to undergraduates there, and it's an honor to be before you and getting to bring the word uh, to you. I'm I'm so, uh, I love this church. This is our home church, and we have loved going through, as though it's painful, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of the blues of the Bible in some ways. There's this uh, clarifying and sobering message that God is in control of everything all the time, but that life is broken. Or in the words of Stafford Wright, who, is a great, uh, old, who was a great Old Testament scholar in his essay on Ecclesiastes, he said, life has lost the key to itself. It's broken. And there's no ability to fix it. There's no resources in this world for us uh, within ourselves or uh, within our own industry, our own intelligence, to rebuild the Garden of Eden but, man, but God has put eternity in our hearts. And I think that's another way of saying we want to build the Garden of Eden here. And so everything's vapor. As Scott likes to remind us that 100 years, all new people, right? It's that everything's broken and we're going to die. But that God is also in control. We take passages like Romans 8.28 that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose Yet, life is still really frustrating. And it's not in the big things, you know, the big message of Ecclesiastes that that, that I really struggle with. This big, massive message that God is in control and it's mysterious and that life has lost the key to itself. My struggle is at BP, um, at the gas pump. You know, I have all these big, it's just this week, you know, it has the little card scanner, right? And I'm already late to where I need to be. It's got the card scanner and it's asking me, is this a debit card? No, for the sixth time, enter. And then it says, see cashier. And I was, I don't want to see the cashier. That's so 80s. And I'm getting madder and madder. And here's the thing. I am a practical atheist at a gas pump that doesn't work. (laughs) 
all the big and wonderful, Romans 8, 28, the message of Ecclesiastes, all of those things go out the window in the weeds of life, right? Where we really live, in the carpool, in the cubicle, in the crossroads of our lives where things are hard. How do we take the big message that God is in control to the gas pump? And that's the issue of wisdom and folly. Walker Percy once wrote in The Last Gentleman that it's not the, I'm paraphrasing, and it's not the big things in life that he struggles with, you know. It's not the big things. It's how do I live from one ordinary minute to the next on a Wednesday afternoon? And that's the issue of wisdom and folly. We're going to look at two things today. How do we live from one ordinary minute on a Wednesday afternoon? How do we take this great message of the gospel and live? Uh, how do we do that? There are two paths. You can choose folly, which is our first point, or wisdom. How do, we, how do we live from one ordinary minute as foolish people? Let's look at our first point together. What is folly? And the writer of Ecclesiastes, or Koheleth, or the preacher, he gives us three examples of what it looks like to be a practical atheist. And even we can say we believe all these things. What it looks like to be a practical atheist in the weeds of life on a Four o'clock, after, four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. There's three things. Um, pride that leads to impatience and rage. And then a need to escape to a crippling nostalgia. It's foolish. And I promise you, we all struggle with all of these or one of these because I know I do and you're like me. One of the first things he tells us is that it's a proud in spirit. So in the Old Testament, really in... Old Testament and New Testament, but especially in the Old Testament, pride and folly are synonymous. The proud person is also the fool. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. To be foolish is to want to be your own God. It's the essence of folly, and it's the essence of pride, is to try to take matters into your own hand. That leads you to think that you are in control of this world, which takes us to, as I'll call, We'll say it again several times. It takes us to crazy town. One way ticket to crazy town is the illusion that we are in control and that we are God. It's pride, right? False, empty, vain, conceited. But it manifests itself in impatience. He says the end of something is better than the beginning of something. He said, don't be like the, be patient in spirit, not the proud in spirit. Uh, Don't be impatient because the end of something is better than the beginning of something. Here's what he's saying. It's easier to start things. It's just easier. And going through life is just hard. It's all of it's frustrating. And it's not the big stressors. Really, for most of us, it's not the big things that sink us. It, it's the gas pump. It's the little arguments. It's that little thing that, that your spouse does. It's the little irritations that add up over time that cause us to be profoundly impatient, that things just get hard, and we grind the gears of life, and we quit. See, when we forget that God is in control, we forget the big picture. We forget that God is in control of the little things too. And so we want to give up. He says that's the height. That's folly. It's pride. 
I mean, how many times have you started a Bible study? Or how about like read through the Bible in a year plan and you stop in Leviticus every single year? A project to be a better neighbor or a project to be a better friend. Or it's kind of like the first day of school. I always remember the first day of school where I had like my crayon box was perfect for one day. And the perfect crayons and the, and the glue stick that was gone on the second day. And the scissors. And this year, I'm going to keep up with this. This year, I'm going to be like Melissa, who's perfect, right? This year, and, and I'm doomed every single time. Every time, I'm doomed. And, and I'm just, I live with this constant sense of failure. And so here's what I do. You just quit. And what he's saying here is that pride just, pride makes us quit. Because we think we know how it's going to end. Oh, I know how this is going to go. It's just just too hard. I'm just going to give up. That's why people quit on marriage so much. Been a pastor for 14 years. I was a pastor of a church for eight and a half years. Dealt with a lot of marriages. And half of those marriages, if not more, they didn't end because of some great failure, some great sort of catastrophic scandal. It was because they just got tired of each other and just they just gave up. They just gave up because it was too hard to be with each other. God's called us to a long view approach. Think about your impatience for a second. What is it telling you about your heart? Think about how big a quitter you can be sometimes. It's we forget that God is in control. This impatience leads to the second thing that Koheleth, the preacher, talks about, which is rage. In verse 9, he says, Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. The better translation, I think, for our, is we think of anger, um, really it's rage. Listen to what one commentator, the way, he de- the way he defined it. It's a haughty indignation which a proud person feels when things do not go the way they perceive they should go. Such an attitude involves a person in difficulties with others. It induces rash thoughts in reference to God. I'm like, what are you doing, God? You ever done that? Yeah. Because in your pride, you know better than he does. And so rage is a response. It's, a, it's an attempt to control the uncontrollable. And so when the writer of Ecclesiastes says, what God has made crooked, who can make straight? He's not saying crooked in the negative sense. He's saying, like, you can't fix yourself in this world, and there's some things that you need to just surrender to that you're, you're not in control of. Rage is an attempt to control what you can't control. Okay, let's walk through rage for a second. Buckle up. Where does it start? Someone has said something that hurt you. Or, guys, this is, a, this is one we don't want to... Guys get their feelings hurt too. We just bury it. Or you feel rejected. A colleague gets ahead of you. Your son or your daughter says something that terrifies you. You're in traffic. You're on four. How about you're on Hill, you're in Hills, you're on Hillsborough Road at five. PM in line at Starbucks and you called ahead 
you did the mobile thing, right? And they still don't have your drink ready? The scenarios are endless. How about this? Rehashing conversations with a spouse, rehashing conversations with a boss or an employee or a student. And then what happens is this fear comes, fear of loss, fear of exposure, fear of losing your reputation or your life or your promotion, fear fear of losing losing your place in line at Ben and Jerry's on free ice cream day. That happened to me. And then that that old familiar feeling of self-loathing and shame and sadness, and it triggers something in you. I don't want this world to hurt me. I refuse to be sad. I refuse to be hurt. And so you seethe. You kill people in your mind, in your car. I will rage instead. Here's a rage is a defense mechanism against what you're really feeling. That you live in a world that is vapor and you can't control it. Here's a common attribute or a fruit of rage. I heard it from a psychologist years ago. He said, he used this word, a suicide. You know what a suicide is? A suicide are the assumptions that we have about other people, and we kill them in our minds when we have negative assumptions about other people. We commit a suicide. Individuals commit a suicide. Families commit a suicide. Neighbors commit a suicide. Churches commit a suicide. We kill people with our worst assumptions about them. And a great example of that is, the, is texting. Now, I'm not, a great, I'm not great at responding, so I'm guilty of this. But imagine this scenario. You've texted someone, a friend, and, you, and it was a nice text, like, hey, how you doing? Let's hang sometime. Right? It's real casual. And you thought about how you're going to say it. Let's hang. Like, hey, let's hang. And they don't respond immediately. You don't even get the little dots that are coming and showing that they're going to respond. <laughs> Nothing. Flatline. And so you, you know, you know, you're all right. You only check your phone 120 times in half an hour. Seeing their beloved name pop up on your phone, the most precious thing in your world, and you check your phone 120 times while you're having coffee with your wife at Panera. She's telling you about her day. And you wait and you wait. And here's what's happening to me. Now, again, a lot of this is me, so pardon me. You don't have to hear me preach like once a year, so okay. But here's what I think. I start thinking, it's me. It's always me. I must come across a certain way as overly needy or something. But I just said, let's hang. And so the voices of condemnation start coming back. I'm not enough. You've never been enough. That night before you go to bed... You make a decision. You still haven't received the response. You know what? Forget them. I don't need them. They're phonies. They're cold. You know what? Truth be told, they were really never my friend anyway. I've been given all this relationship. They are dead to me. 
So you delete the thread. You delete their name. And then the buzz of your phone tells you, hey, sorry, I've been busy all day, would love to hang sometime. You know that feeling? That's the feeling of folly. And what happens over time, he says, anger lodges in the heart of a fool. Here's what he's saying. It sets up shop inside your being. You see, it's, anger is not this passive thing. It's active. It's pursuing you. Anger is like SEAL Team 6 coming after you. It sets up shop inside of you. It builds a home inside of you. And anger, rage is formative. It turns you into someone you never want to be. And so we become bitter, cynical, cruel, biting, a shell of ourselves. Because we refuse to accept the vapor of life. The third thing he tells us, uh, and by the way, before I just jump from rage for a second, there are different types of rage. So the first thing, if you're not like fly off the handle, crazy town rage that I have, uh, sort of weird, you may have the passive aggressive rage. You're still raging. How about this? I'm just not going to be as friendly, just a couple of clicks less friendly. That's rage. This is southern rage, right? <laughs> or sarcasm. A lot of our sarcasm is rage. It's the language of cynicism. What is your, let me ask you this question. What is your sarcasm, what is your sarcasm saying about your heart? Here's the third thing he says before we jump to wisdom. Verse 10, don't say, were the former days better than these? Why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. He's saying that's a foolish thing to say. And in the words of Bono from God Part 2, his song God Part 2, you can glorify the past till your future dries up. Things like, well, young people used to respect older people. I've said, the reason I'm saying, I'm 42 now, I've said that. Young people used to be more, more like I used to say, I was like, but here's the thing, my parents said that too, and then their parents, and then their parents, or like, I remember when people used to have to work hard, or like, oh, those millennials, right? Oh, man, I wish things like, were they, like they were back in 1940 or 1950 or 1960 or 1970 or 1980, back when Coast, Cokes cost a nickel. Apparently that's a real thing. But here's what we're really saying. Back when I was pretty, back when I was fast, back when I had power, 
It's a form of escape. It's a form of escaping the present world, the world that you have, the world that's hard, the world where your heart gets broken. In the words of Tom Petty, some say life will beat you down, break your heart, and steal your crown. And you want to escape from that reality. It's a way of escaping into a crippling nostalgia that keeps you from the people that are right in front of you and the life that's actually going on. The clock is actually running in your life, so you escape from that. It's a form of numbing the rage. Or how about this? I'll pick on young people. You have a different form of nostalgia, but you're looking at your future. You're looking at a healing fantasy when you finally find that job, when you finally find that marriage, when you finally find that money, when everyone finally loves you and you dream about it, then one day you're going to be fixed. And Koheleth, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, would say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a foolish way of thinking. Why? Because the only life you have right now is the one you're sitting in. Folly. But what is wisdom? Now let's go to our second point. Look at verse 12 if you have your, your bulletin or your outline or something, your Bible. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So in the face of pride, what do we have? What is humility? I mean, what is, what is wisdom? I've already told you, it's humility. The wise person is the humble person. That's what Jesus says, blessed are the meek. What is a humble person? At the core of their being, they know they're not God, but that there is one. The humble person confesses that there is a God and that they are a creature. They understand what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. That God is infinite, that means without end, without finish, no fini, right? No end, no limit, but they are finite. They have an end, a beginning and an end. And you have a dash between the day you were born and the day you die, and you're finite. And so you have a life right here. So humility, in the words of Thomas Merton, humility is what makes us real. Pride is what makes us false. Humility is another way. How do you have humility? Fear God. You have this echo throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the, the birthplace of wisdom is the fear of God. It's a humble trust in a God who is in control and who loves us. So instead of pride, humility. Let me ask you, do you know that God allows really hard Red Sea type of stuff into our lives for a variety of reasons, and I cannot explain all of them. But one central reason is to dethrone you from your life. It is to, it is to make you know that you're finite and to embrace that. If that makes you mad, that's rage. <laughs> you're raging on me now. Thanks. But here's a question that you have to ask, a really important question that I love to ask students. To humbly trust God 
instead of trusting myself and my resources at the gas pump, in the weeds, to humbly trust God, you have to ask a really important question. What do you think God is really like? I mean, how do you functionally really think he's like? I get students to describe this God. They'll come to me and say, Richie, I'm trying to stop drinking 12 Milwaukee's Best on Friday night. Can you help me? And I'll say, describe God. Richie, I'm trying to stop doing this drug. I'm trying to stop doing this relationship I know is destructive. I'm trying to stop doing this like vices, different vices they have. How do I stop that? And I say, describe your God. If you think God can help, describe your God. And here's what they describe. An, uh, an omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, cold deity who sees them when they are sleeping and knows when they're awake. They describe Santa, but he's not even jolly. He's stern and mean. And then what I'll say is, 12 Milwaukee's best always beats mean Santa. Always. It does. Your vice always... That vice is way better than a cold, distant deity. The reason you're choosing that is because you don't have the God of the Bible in the center of your being at all. What is God like? Michael Reeves, theologian from Union Seminary in, in Great Britain. God, who is God? What is he essentially? What has he always been? A father perfectly loving his son through the spirit before he created the cosmos. What is the essence of God? God is a loving father. Before he even gave the law, he was a loving father. He says everything changes when you come to the father, son, and the spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity. The father, how the father has loved the son and the spirit. Loving others is not strange or a novel thing for God it is at the root of who he is. So we're saying we have to humbly trust a God that is in control of everything. But when you read the Bible backwards, because we're Christians, you read the New Testament to understand the Old Testament, you understand that this is a loving Father who is the essence of love, who is in control, and who is in the vapor with us. Here's what I love to tell them. That's why I love my job. What is God like? He is exactly like Jesus. Gentle, lowly of heart, which means unpretentious, not a snob, not intimidating, and he's the king of the world. Silencing devils and disease, living and laughing and crying and healing and raising. 1 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. See, wisdom is primarily a person. And so you have to read the world. The, the humility makes us look at the world through the lens of the crucified Christ. And so we're brought into this great story. You're not just lost in the little scene at the gas pump or in your cubicle. You're brought into the great story. Wisdom gives you a new lens to look at this epic story Genesis to Revelation. And so no matter how dark the road becomes, here's what it means. Down in the weeds in the most mundane, 
frustrating part of your life, Jesus wins. That's what hope is. See, humility brings about great wisdom, and so you start having hope. Hope is not a wish. Hope is rooted in the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and ultimately his return. And so hope, only this kind of hope can root out impatience and rage. It's the only thing that can. This kind of otherworldly hope is what makes you honest. In the words of M. Ward from Monsters of Folk, he says it takes a lot of hope to grieve. It takes a lot of hope to grieve, to be honest, to be really sad about life. And the mess that's around us, it takes a lot of hope to grieve. Like Jesus outside that tomb of Lazarus, weeping outside. Jesus, when he was weeping, it was a loud weeping. Everyone heard him weeping. This, this man weeping, and he was troubled in his spirit. That means he was sad, he was brokenhearted, and he was so mad at death. He was so mad at evil, and he was going to do something about it. And he blew a hole in the back of death, in the words of Tim Keller. That's the only way that you can drive through those mundane, frustrating moments that make us want to give up is because Jesus wins. No matter how bad the day is, Jesus wins at every single sentence. That's hope. Consider the work of God, he says. He says, really think about it. Really comb over the work of God and God's person and God's promise. Consider the work of God from Genesis to Revelation. Consider the heart of God that in the day of prosperity you can be joyful. Why? Because you have good days and bad days, Jesus wins. Are you reading your little life in light of the big story? That's the beginning of wisdom. And so here's the thing. You become less reactive over time. Less reactive, more patient, less of a jerk. Honestly. What is joy? Tim Keller calls it a spiritual buoyancy. That life is coming at you, but it doesn't sink you. You get words from doctors that you don't want to hear. You get little hurts and little irritations, but it doesn't sink you. A spiritual buoyancy, how do you find the spiritual buoyancy? By focusing on the unchanging privileges that you have in Jesus Christ. A joy, Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He tells the disciples that. Rejoice that your names are written, perfect past tense, are written in heaven. And they just did the most amazing ministry ever. They were casting out demons. Before they were like fishing, and now they're casting out demons. And their minds are blown. Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, I do not know what your day holds tomorrow. I do not know what Wednesday at 4 p.m. looks like for you. I do not know. But I know it's as frustrating and hard as mine is. Christian, your name is etched indelibly in heaven by the hand of God. And so then it fills us with wonder. Yeah, I'm going to use that word. Wonder. To realize we live in a ruined paradise. 
beautiful. And it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. And it's exquisite and sublime. In about a month or so, a month and a half, we will smell the honeysuckle. What Lewis would call, what I would call, an echo of the Garden of Eden. But we live in a world of honeysuckle and sewage. But it's not just sewage and it's not just honeysuckle. And to live with wonder. In the words of G.K. Chesterton from his book, The Man Who Was Thursday, the main character in its sign, I'll never forget the first time I read this. He said, shall I tell, shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? That we've only known the back of the world. We see everything from the back and it looks brutal. That's not a tree, that's the back of a tree. That's not a cloud, that's the back of a cloud. Can't you see that everything is stooping and hiding its face? If only we could get round front. That is what Easter celebrates. The resurrected body has, abs- the resurrected Jesus has absolutely no vapor on it. It's the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth in space, time, and history. There it is. And that is the anchor for your soul. So instead of rage, we have joy and hope. Instead of patience, we have perseverance. Because Jesus wins, we can go through those moments. And I'll close with the words of Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor in Los Angeles. Becoming a Christian means you begin to see your life from God's point of view. You not only see yourself differently, you see others differently. And the world we live in gradually, more and more, becomes enchanted again. Coming to see this world, the world this way, including the movies we see and the songs we sing, the way you talk to the checkout clerk, the way you do your job on a Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m., all this takes a transformed imagination. A transformed imagination fired by God's Spirit, but trained over time to see all things charged with God's grandeur. Wisdom is becoming a child again, longing for the return of the King, living in light of it. Let's pray. Lord, we are foolish. And we confess that to you, Lord, I pray for those who have never trusted in you or have confused you with dead religion. And they have a a monstrosity for a God. Show them through the Spirit that you are Jesus, the great, kind, gentle Lamb of God for them. Help us love him. Help us trust him. In his name we pray. Amen.